The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So uh, maybe some of you have been here the past couple of weeks. I've been reviewing some basic instructions. Basic not in the sense that it's easy, but that just that the instructions are relatively simple, I think. But not necessarily easy because of the way our mind is conditioned. And a lot of these instructions come from one of my teachers, Saida Utejaniya, this wonderful Burmese teacher. And recently Gabe Keller, one of our staff members and one of the teachers here, he put um, the transcription of Saida's instructions for a retreat I took a couple years ago with him up on our blog. So you could go to comegrowmeditation.org and right on the home page is a big obvious link for the blog. And you'll look, you'll see, and it's about 10 pages, and it's just his morning instructions that first day of a 14-day retreat. And I find it's a very succinct, comprehensive introduction to what we mean by Buddhist awareness practice. Now, of course, every teacher, including Saito Utejaniya, they have their own particular take and emphasize you know, a certain angle on the practice. So you're not going to hear from Saito Utejaniya, this Burmese teacher, a lot of like, bring your attention to your breath. Because that's not how he practices. He's really interested in using awareness to be interested in awareness. So in a way, we're really interested in being aware of how the mind is relating to the present moment. And so that will be the particular angle. So I want to talk about this tonight as I have the last couple nights. First, just a review. So a couple weeks ago, the point I was making, and Saida makes this point quite a bit in these instructions, is it's uh, just to get started with this style of awareness practice, we have to at least suspend any disbelief with this instruction that in any moment of our experience, whether we're formally meditating or just doing our life, living our life, it's never more, our experience is never more than something being known. And of course, life seems so much more complicated than that, so much more rich than that. But whatever it is, whatever experience we've ever had or having right now, or will have in the future, it will only be this experience of something, some experience of the body or mind, right? some experience of the five physical senses, smelling, tasting, touching, seeing and hearing, or some experience of the mind, like awareness of thought or emotion. It's just one of these six things being known. And of course, Something is being known moment by moment by moment. Through the past, it's never, the past has never been more than something being known. Right now, this experience that each of us are having right now, it's something being known. And in the future, it will be the same. Something will be known. And if that, like for example, if you feel frustrated hearing that, frustration is being known. If you think it's hogwash, that whatever that experience, that mental or physical experience is for you right now, it exists as something being known. Even when we're lost in thought, in a little bubble of some kind, that's also an experience being known. It's just that the mind isn't reflectively knowing that it's an experience being known because it's lost in thought. Or like when we're sleeping. Even in deep sleep, it's still an experience being known. So, now, it's not about believing whether that's true, you know, believing that that's true. It's about being curious. So, if we cultivate that perspective, that moment to moment, something's being known, what is the effect of doing that on our mind, on the way, you know, life is for us? In other words, is it skillful to experience our experience 
in that frame of something being known. This is being known. This is being known. Whether we're reacting neurotically or we're in a very sublime, non-reactive state, it's something being known. Is that skillful? And then last week I, I shared another thing that Saida uses a lot and it's an important part of the Buddha's teachings. In a way, it's like the engine of awakening. And uh, some of the people I teach with, some of the well-known teachers these days, they really use this as a more detailed description of what we mean by being aware. Because being aware, you know, especially in a Buddhist meditation context, is not the same as being conscious. Because you can be completely distracted and you're still conscious. I always give the example like you can drive home, be completely lost in thought, but you're still conscious enough to avoid hitting other cars or bicyclists or whatever to remember the directions and how to get to your house or apartment. But you're not really there. You're kind of on autopilot, but the mind is still sensitive. It's still conscious. So when we talk about awareness, or when we talk about mindful awareness, we're really talking about a mind that uh, has some wholesome qualities that are strong, has some momentum, and are in balance. And so what are those qualities that make the mind aware, mindfully aware? Right? And when the mind is mindfully aware, then that mind sees things as they are. It has insight. It learns the, about the causes for stress and the causes for release. And the Buddha is very adamant about that, that the mind that is aware, that's in balance, that has these wholesome qualities, he talks about it sloping to Nibbana, sloping to freedom, to release, to everything that is wholesome, in the same way that the Ganges River slopes to the ocean. It's like you can't stop it. So it's not about you or me getting enlightened or trying to be enlightened. It's about bringing the mind into this balance and then awakening, becoming a wiser and kinder human being is unavoidable. Even if you didn't want to be a wiser and kinder human being, you'd become a wiser and kinder human being if your heart-mind is in balance in this way. So I think it was last Wednesday I talked about this. And you, a lot of you, especially those of you who've been practicing for a while, you'd guess this you know, list of mental qualities. It's called the five faculties. So nothing happens without some confidence or faith because if we don't have any confidence or faith that there's something to do with our mind in any moment of our life, we're just going to let sort of the mind do whatever it wants to do, sort of live out habit energy, whether that's worrying or trying to make something happen. So faith or confidence that there is something to do with our mind, something to cultivate, something to bring into balance, something to wake up to. Faith is also related to a kind of humility that I'm not free from suffering, so I want to learn. I want to pay attention, so I learn. right? Because we, we can have faith or confidence that there's something to learn. And what's really deadly, unskillful, is to think there's nothing for me to learn. Like, I know it all already. Because right? then we're damned in a way. When we think we know everything already, we stop learning. So this is the first quality that needs to be there and in balance with the other four qualities, whether you call it faith or confidence. But like I said, it has elements of humility, elements that we don't want to waste this moment or waste this life, that there's something actually more important than just having pleasant sense experiences, as nice as they can be. There's actually something to do with this life. And then you could see how that element of faith or confidence naturally leads to the second, which is a willingness to make effort. Or more specifically, we often use the word a willingness to persist. And basically, we have that, that effort, that energy to persist in non-distraction, being in the present moment. Right? So 
persist, for example, in abandoning whatever's in the way of being present or developing whatever helps the mind be present, be able to be connected, right? Because if we have some humility that we don't know everything there is to know, we don't know how to be happy, for example, right? I mean, we all want to be happy, but isn't it interesting how often we bump into unhappiness, anger, greed, whatever kind of unhappiness we tend to bump into. So now we're willing to persist because we have faith that we don't know it all and that we have some sense that maybe happiness can be realized. So we're willing to persist in being connected to the here and now because whatever happiness we're going to find, it's got to be here and now. right? So we're we're going to connect instead of being lost in la-la land and wanting to be happy and speculating about it or fantasizing about it. We're going to ground in the present moment. So we're willing to make the effort. Even if we don't know what we're doing, we'll persist. Because if we do something and it doesn't help the mind, the heart be more intimate, more connected, we'll learn. We'll take that in and we'll try something else. And we keep persisting. We don't give up. Never give up. Because giving up means we're willing to just be swept along by our habits. And, you know, I don't know about your habits, but, you know, a lot of my habits I have seen from paying attention that they don't really lead to any kind of lasting happiness. You know, like the habit, uh, like, oh, I wonder if there's something worth eating in the fridge. It's not like it's bad to eat food, of course, but to think that eating something is going to make a difference in terms of lasting, resonant happiness. I mean, we've had so many relatively delicious things to eat. Has it tipped the scale toward happiness in any sort of resonant, lasting, unshakable way? No. Same with entertainments. We've had, hopefully, you know, inter- interesting, wonderful entertainments. But it doesn't really change the fact that we're often stressed, often neurotic, often tied up in knots, often unhappy. So we're going to persist in being intimate, connected. That allows us to respect the continuity of present moment awareness, right? To develop this oh, this experience of the body is being known. This experience of the mind is being known. That's mindfulness. So we have faith. We have persistence or making effort. We have, like, because of the effort, we're actually connecting with the present moment. And this brings us back to the thing I just mentioned at the beginning. Being present means we're in that space of this is being known. There's only really two categories of things that are known. The activity of the five physical senses Hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, what am I going to say? Seeing, right? So activity of the body is being known or the activity of the mind, thinking, emoting, is being known, mental images. It's one of these six things. And that's mindfulness. That's the third category, right? Something is being known. And when we're persisting at that, when we have confidence that it's relevant to be to have present moment awareness, and to persist, to have continuity of present moment awareness, which just means something is being known. Activity of the body is being known. Whatever it is that's predominant. It doesn't matter what mindfulness is knowing as long as it's a present moment happening and there's just this non-judging awareness. Okay, now this is being known. When that persistence, when that is stable enough, then we get this fourth quality, which we call samadhi. This we more and more don't translate because the early translators used the word concentration. But it's a bad translation. Because when, you know, the way I was brought up, when I hear that word concentration, it always evokes for me this idea of focusing my attention on something. Like, but that's not really samadhi. Samadhi is this more natural stability of mind that comes when the mind is settled. It's not disturbed by what's coming and going. 
It's not judging what's coming and going. It's found stability in being present. And those of you who've been practicing for a while, you know, because you've hopefully touched this at least in moments, you know the difference, of course, between the mind being really wired and reactive and superficial and when the mind is less that way. Right? And so as you keep moving along that spectrum of non-distraction, non-reactivity, non-superficiality, you know, what we call intimacy, steadiness, stability of the mind, grounded, centered, calm, tranquil, collected, gathered, unified. Right? These are some of the words we use instead of concentration for the Pali word or the Sanskrit word samadhi. We use these, these words. Well, we know that experience, right? Because we know the opposite. So what's not that? Well, feeling the awareness is steady. It's sort of unshakable. That's part of this experience of awareness, that this balance of awareness that we're developing. And then the last is wisdom. Wisdom is really the word we use when the mind, the heart, sees things as they are. Sees, sees the changing nature, the impersonal nature, the unsatisfactory nature. Like nothing is really worth getting attached. Nothing is really worth identifying with, struggling with. Not that we want to let the world stay the way it is, but that in the moment that the mind is knowing something, it's already this way. So maybe you heard some news this last week you didn't like, like maybe the trial that was just concluded here in Minnesota about the police officer shooting uh, Philandro, right? So... Then something happens. You know, you hear some news you don't like, whether it's you know big news or just something in your own life. And then something arises, an emotion arises, a thought arises. Well, that thought, that emotion is already here. So for my body and mind to go, no, I mean, it might be understandable that we reject something, but it doesn't help. Because the emotion, the image, the mental image, the idea, whatever it is that's shown up, it's already there. So from a practice point of view, we never reject what's already present. Why, when something bad has happened, would I do this? You know, It's sort of like in Buddhism, the Buddha calls this the second dart or the second arrow, like Naturally, as a human being, sometimes difficult experience happens. And he says, that's the first arrow or the first dart. You can't avoid it as a human being. Difficult experience is going to happen. So why would we then, after something difficult happen, happens, why would we then shoot ourselves with a second dart or stab ourselves with a second dart? It doesn't help. The important thing in, when something difficult happens is to be clearly aware it's like this now. This difficult emotion is like this. If we're able to really meet the moment with confidence that it's valuable, that it's useful to connect, to persist at abandoning what's in the way of being intimate, developing what supports being intimate, connecting with the present moment, understanding it's something being known, an experience of the body being known, an experience of the mind being known, persisting enough so that there's stability of awareness, so there's no distortion in what's happening. The mind is seeing clearly. That's the samadhi. Then the mind has insight. Because it sees clearly, it knows how to be skillful, knows how to engage, how to respond, how to show up, when to be quiet, when to speak up, when to do what needs to be done to make the world, make our life a better place. There's really not, we're not able to be a skillful human being if we're not able to show up. And to begin to see how the habits of the mind, like the habits of culture that have been affected, the conditioning of my mind, right? how they're expressing, how they're coloring the experience. So to really know how to be a human being, 
given that we're conditioned by the genetic code, this life, this mind, heart is conditioned by culture, you know, and all the distortions of culture like racial, you know, racism, sexism, classism, you know, all these different ways that just naturally, unavoidably are distorting how we show up in the world. But we can be aware. We can't make it go away, that conditioning, but we can learn to be mindfully aware of it. That's how we know how to be skillful. Otherwise, we just, as I often say, we keep doing the same thing, seeing things the same way, doing the same thing, getting the same result. We keep replicating the cycles of suffering that have already been swirling in our own mind and heart, in our own society, in our families. We just keep having the same thing. I mean, it looks always slightly different, but like the divisive energy now is not so different than the kind of divisive energy in the past. I mean, we always say how bad it is now, and it is bad. There's a lot of injustice. There's a lot of craziness. People are being harmed. But, you know, it was bad in the 50s with McCarthy and Jim Crow and segregation. And it was bad in the 30s and it was bad in the 20s. And it was, it's human beings are vi- have been very good at setting emotion suffering in their families, in our families, in societies, in culture, right? This is this sort of meanness or whatever we want to point to right now. This is not a new thing. It's just the next cycle of what's been swirling, spinning, being replicated, who knows how long. So we need to try something different. And this is the, the sort of the new content for tonight as I'm sharing some of these instructions is you know once we get that it's just something being known and once we get this engine that we call awareness, the faith, the skillful faith or confidence, the understanding of persistence or right effort about body and mind being known. This is really the heart of mindfulness. The samadhi that will develop, that steadiness or stability of mind that will develop if we have enough continuity of present moment awareness. That is the cause for that stability. Stability is the cause for wisdom, the mind seeing things it hasn't seen before about the nature of the mind. So when we have awareness, one of the first things we start to wake up to is what Saida Utejaniya, this Burmese teacher, he calls getting interested in the legacy that's being created. This is really the teachings, the Buddhist teachings on karma. Karma just means intentional action, right? So when we talk about karma, n- normally what we mean in the West, we kind of misuse the word. We don't usually use the word karma to mean intentional action. We usually mean it, use it to mean the fruit of intentional action. So like more technically, we should say the fruit of action or the fruit of karma. So this is the legacy. So when we have awareness, when we have these five qualities and they're strong and they're in balance, then the first thing we begin to wake up to, you could say this is sort of the first uh, way wisdom starts to manifest in our lives is we start to be honest about what my mind, the way my mind is showing up and relating, what is it setting in motion for me and those around me? We start to be able to take responsibility for what our mind and how we're aware, how we're relating to our experience, what that's setting in motion. Like, am I sowing the seeds of being tight and afraid and dependent and reactive? and disconnected, or am I sowing some other seeds, like being more wise and more kind and more forgiving and more spacious and more skillful? What kind of seeds are being planted right now? Because when there's awareness, these five qualities are there, they have some momentum, they're in balance, then we begin to read this more subtle territory we call karma. That in every moment, dependent on how the mind is showing up, relating, seeds are being planted. So 
it makes sense that we would be curious. Well, what kind of seeds are being planted? Are they useful seeds? Are they going to be helpful to me and to others, the kinds of seeds that are being planted? Or not? Because otherwise we tend to fall into what we could call wrong view, where we think, one, it doesn't matter, because life is sort of, you know, that some version of the story that I'm helpless and life is sort of happening to me. So why bother? And this is why, this is really points to faith. Faith is that confidence that there's something I can do in the present moment that will affect how things unfold. So faith that I'm not helpless. That bad stuff may happen, but there's something I can do. Like have insight. Better understand the way it is. Better understand how to be a human being, how to be aware. One way to, a simple way to understand this legacy or the fruit of karma, the fruit of action. Here, action, more important than like the deeds we do in the world are the qualities, the intention in the mind, right? The motivation. So like in Tibetan Buddhism, one phrase they use a lot is, everything rests on the tip of motivation. It, our, the underlying motive, the underlying intention matters. You might on the surface look like you're being kind, but if you're really, what's really going on in your heart and mind is you want to be liked, right? Well, what, what's getting set in motion is that neediness, that dependency on being liked. So even though on the surface you may be doing something that people around you would call good or skillful, what you're setting in motion in your heart is, I'm in need. I'm not good the way I am. I need people to like me. So that's a crunch on our heart. That's not an opening of the heart, a releasing of the heart. Actually, if you really looked in that moment, you'd see you're getting tight, not because your actions are bad, but because the motivation isn't helpful, it's unskillful. The mind or heart is reinforcing the idea that I need something from you. And that, if you look, you'll see is tight, the cause for tightness. And therefore, by definition, we call that unskillful. Because something that is causing the heart-mind to contract, and those around you, the hearts and minds around you to contract, that's what we mean by unskillful. So we talk about the unwholesome root. So we don't even have to figure out what's unskillful because the Buddha says, and we can just check out whether what he says is true. He says, greediness is one of the unwholesome roots. So whenever your motivation is tainted by greediness, then notice things are getting tighter. And whenever it's tainted by aversion or fear or hate, you know, the other unwholesome root, notice it's always making things tighter. A lot of, we always have kind of discussions here when people ask questions about, well, isn't anger sometimes necessary? And people forget that compassion can be fierce. Love can be fierce at times. You don't have to be angry to be powerful. Sometimes people think like the only expression of power is to be angry. But when we use the word anger or aversion or fear or hate or self-righteousness, we're always talking about it as something that's causing the heart to contract and tends to cause people around you, their hearts, to contract. So it's unskillful. It doesn't set in motion anything that's useful in the world. It may look on the surface like it's helpful, but when you really check in to the what's getting set in motion, you'll see that if it's actually anger or hate or fear, it's counterproductive. But sometimes it may look like somebody's angry at you, but they're really speaking more from this fierce clarity or this fierce compassion. It's because they care about everything. They're standing up, they're speaking truth to power, they're, you know, like a mother might grab her kid who's about to do something stupid, like run into traffic, 
You know, it might actually be a little bit rough. Or if she's not close by, she might scream. That doesn't mean she hates the child. It just means she's willing to do whatever it takes to be protective, to do what needs to be done in that moment. It's out of love. I mean, it could be out of fear. But if it's really skillful, it's out of love. So we can memorize and then start to notice the three unwholesome roots of greediness and all of its different manifestations of aversion. And then the third is delusion. It's kind of the over, you know, it's sort of the overarching category because greed and aversion really come out of delusion or not understanding. But it also is that arrogant uh, sense that I mentioned earlier where we think we already know. So then we justify not being interested not being aware, not being intimate, because I already know. I already know who's right, you know, the Republicans or the Democrats or, you know, this or that. So we don't, we don't stay fresh. We don't listen. We're not really sensitive. <coughs> we're arrogant. We're self-righteous. That's also an expression of delusion. And then, of course, being in denial, being distracted, these are other you know, being superficial, other expressions of delusion. So these are the unwholesome roots, so we can check them out. In terms of the legacy, when we notice the mind is under, not entirely, but maybe greed is a strong force in the mind, or aversion, fear is a strong force in the mind, or delusion is a strong, including dullness is a strong force in the mind, then we can notice, like, well, let's check if the Buddha was right. Because he said when these one of these roots are dominating the mind we're planting seeds of the heart getting tight and often causing the hearts of others, minds of others to get tight. So let, let me pay attention. That will wake us up, but like to check out. Oh, am I digging the hole deeper? Am I setting emotion, suffering, and stress? And we, That's an interesting thing to notice. Right? That kind of gets us interested. Oh yeah, this is not helping. This isn't helping. Oh, look at that. That's how we burn out old habits that aren't helping, is we notice, oh look at I'm going to hell. I'm <laughs> sowing the seeds that are going to make life harder for me and others. Because nobody, no human being consciously, with awareness, chooses to make their life or even another person's life worse. We do it when we're not aware. Even when we're just trying to you know, get revenge and harm somebody else. Even when we think that is somehow wise, when we really pay attention, you can't harm somebody else. Even a mosquito. Like if you're there with a mosquito and it's on your arm and your habit, your superficial habit is just to do that and you know, flick it away, the dead mosquito away. When you're really sensitive and aware, it doesn't make sense for you or the mosquito to do that. It seems like it does. But when you actually see what is going on in your mind and heart when you do that, it's like, no, I don't, I don't want that impression in my heart and mind. So I'll do this. You know? And then, or I've gotten good over the years catching them without killing them, walking to the door, you know? And then you can't just let them go because they're just blow back. So you, like that. <laughs> and then you shut the door really fast. And of course, it's not perfect, but the impression that's left in my heart is different when I do that than when I do this. And you can check it out for yourself because it's not something to believe in. It's something to check out. And once you know the unwholesome roots, then you immediately know the wholesome roots, right? Because it's non-greed, non-aversion, and non-delusion. So non-greed is something like a willingness to be content with what we have, right? Or, you know, contentedness, generosity, uh, an appreciation of simplicity. These are the, and those qualities, you could bank on that. You know, like, if you ever want to be happier, just reflect on the possibility of being content with the way the moment already is and what you already have in the moment. So we could be, you know, obsessing about getting a new phone or a new car or a new partner or a new this, a new that. 
And you know what that does to our mind. Or we could be reflecting on what we have in our life as being good enough, worthy of contentment, worthy of being relaxed and not needing the moment, the life to be other than the way it is. Like right now, I mean, I'm not, I know nobody's life is perfect, but even right now sitting here together, knowing that our life is imperfect, but isn't it true that as we're sitting here, we could tune in to how this moment is good enough? Like you might be a little sticky, especially some corners get less of the fresh air than other corners in the room. But just sort of settling into the environment of the room as being good enough or the clothes that you're wearing or the quality of your mind. We could bring that to mind, the contentment, we could bring that to mind instead of how the moment could be better, which is agitating for the mind. It disturbs the mind and body. So non-greed, we could start looking for that as a wholesome root, a cause, a way to plant seeds of happiness. And then non-aversion is kindness and compassion, right? But it's okay to think of it as non-aversion. Like how to be in the moment without any fear and aversion, without pushing anything away. doesn't mean that we don't want the world to be different or we're not going to do something. It just means we're not going to do it with the motivation of fear and aversion and hate. We're gonna, we can do it with kindness and compassion. So like if we're a little cool and we're going to put a sweater on, we could do it in a funk like, God, it's cold. You know, why is it so cold in June? Well, this isn't right. Or it could be an act of compassion, you know, and appreciation. I am happy that I have a sweater. It's right here. You know, it's nice to put it on. It's like an act of kindness. It could be really an action that leads to lightness and ease in the mind and body. Or it can be an action if it's coming out of aversion that leads to tightness, you know, and frustration. And non-delusion, right? So just humility is one expression of non-delusion, right? Our willingness to be intimate and, and interested because we know it's relevant, the present moment is relevant, it's worthy, that to really connect with the present moment, the mind has to be in that open state. If we have a fixed view or a fixed idea of what's happening, we can't be intimate. When you go home and meet your partner or somebody you live with or your cat, and you're meeting your fixed idea of your cat, you're not having a relationship with your cat. You're having a relationship with your fixed idea of your cat or your partner. So we have to drop that. We have to go beyond any fixed idea, which is a kind of humility. This is what we mean by non-delusion. And these are the wholesome roots. So this is the invitation for this week's practice, and we'll keep moving on. Next week, I think I'll talk about right effort a little bit more. But this week, as you're just sort of reflecting on the teachings tonight, and I am recording tonight, so uh, you can re-listen if you want, but we're curious about the legacy. We're taking responsibility for the seeds that are getting planted every moment dependent on how the mind is connecting or not connecting, relating to the present moment, we're planting either seeds that lead to the body-mind getting tighter, more difficult, or we're planting seeds that are leading to release. And when we really get that this is more than just a story, but it's actually true, we start naturally becoming vigilant about being aware. Because it matters. And I'll just end with this story from Saida. At the end of this 14-day retreat, he, the last day before we ended, he just said something that was so poignant. It just hit home. And, you know, partly the way he said it. And I think this is, you know, you can find this talk on Dharma Seed. It was May, I think, 2015. Could have been 2014, but I think it was May 2015 at Spirit Rock. So if you go to dharmaseed.org, we're all the Dharma talks from this tradition are, you'll see Saida's uh, talk. And so if you just look at the last day of that May retreat, 
his closing comment to us was, you know, this is a very rough paraphrase, but you know, you know what really breaks my heart is if all of you understood the value of the practice, you would really practice. It's the not, it's the fact that people don't understand how useful, how functional, how beneficial mindful awareness, the continuity of mindful awareness is, that they don't put in the appropriate effort to develop that habit, to make this new habit to be aware. And a lot of us, just to be truthful, we kind of get inspired. You know, we read a book or hear a talk, and we sort of orbit the practice. We dabble, you know, because it makes sense. It does. I mean, just on an intellectual level, being aware makes a lot of sense, you know, in terms of being a more competent human being. But we have to change the habit because we've got so much momentum about being distracted and superficial and reactive. So it, it takes initially some real commitment, some real persistence, that second quality, to set in motion the new habit. And if we really knew it mattered, we do. We do all kinds. I mean, human beings make effort. Think about like when you wanted someone to be attracted to you or you, know, you wanted to get ahead in a job or you wanted to grow a garden. I mean, people make effort. Look at, all you have to do is fly on a clear day and you look down and you see how human beings have completely transformed the surface of the earth. I mean, it's scary when you see what we've done over the last, I mean, mostly just in the last few hundred years, the planet has been transformed. So human beings are capable of effort. Unfortunately, most of the effort arises influenced by the three unwholesome roots, greed, fear and aversion, and delusion. And then we get a world like this. So let's study the the legacy of our motivation, our intention, the presence or absence of these six roots, the three wholesome, non-greed, non-fear and aversion, and non-delusion are the three uh, unwholesome roots, greed, anger, and delusion, or greed, hatred, and delusion. But I'll leave it here. We have a little bit more than 10 minutes. It'd be nice to hear from a few of you, questions and comments from your own practice. Remember to point the mic right at your mouth like this, real close. Yeah, please, Anne. Why isn't fear one of the aversions like anger and delusion? Mm-hmm. Yeah, fear is just an expression of aversion. Yeah, yeah. But because people don't always think of fear, right? Because aversion has both a passive expression and a assertive expression. So hate and revenge and resentment, that's a more assertive version of aversion. And fear and closing down is a more passive expression of aversion. Thanks. Who's next? Questions or comments from your practice you'd like to share with the group? Yeah, Robert, you want to pass the mic over? Um, Robert, what um, when you speak of the second arrow, for instance, I'm driving along and I hear this terrible news story, and I do grimace. You know, I, what is, is that the second arrow? No, that's unavoidable. Because the heart's sensitive, because the heart cares, when we hear things uh, like or experience loss or something beautiful happens, the sensitive heart is going to feel an impact. Even the Buddha, you know, like as the metaphor for somebody fully awake, wise, he, his heart was touched by experience. But the question is, what did he do with that impact, that feeling? And what we know when we're aware, when the mind is wise, what we do with feeling, with experience, is we let it in. We let life in. We let emotion move. We allow the heart to be touched. And then when we really let it in, then we don't have to proliferate around it. We don't have to deny it or repress it. We don't get neurotic because we have the, we've learned this option of being intimate. And it almost is like, I mean, this is just a metaphor, so it's not like 
don't take it as sort of true, but just as an example, it's almost like we're letting it in, but it keeps going. So we're not collecting a lot of baggage either. We just feel like grieving, it moves. The tenderness of great loss, like when we lose somebody we love, it never really goes away, but it does cease being a weight in the heart. Do you know that experience when the heart is really tender? Like the wound, in a sense, is still there, but the mind isn't resisting the pain. It's okay, the fact that the heart hurts in the way that it hurts. So that's what, I mean, as we imagine, what would it be like for a saint to be aware of how messy, how much suffering there is in the world? And we imagine that her heart would be really tender, really willing to feel, to be touched, but not diminished, not burdened. So we always say that compassion is an enlivening emotion. It's a liberating emotion. Compassion is not a heavy emotion. It just so happens, though, that the cause for compassion is being intimate with suffering, yours or somebody else's. So we're being touched by the suffering, but the willingness to let it in, to not be afraid of the suffering, is very enlivening and liberating. So it sounds paradoxical. But this is something that even ordinary people like us know. We know in moments, don't we? That experience of being really touched by our suffering or somebody else's suffering. But we're not, we don't feel like flattened or burdened by it. And that's, that's the, du- the direction the, the practice takes us. Thanks, Robert, for bringing that up would like to go next questions you have or your own experience you know about remember we've been talking about legacy and karmic fruits like observing the seeds we planted observing what that set in motion in us and around us taking responsibility what have you learned in this way Yeah, Mesky, please. You want to pass the mic over? Doesn't sound like it's working tonight, does it? Yeah. Do you know what, where the dial is? No. It's the. Well, that's okay. Well, I'll repeat it. If you don't hear me, what Mesky says, raise your hand, and I'll repeat. Hi. Okay. Hi, this is Mesky. Um, so, how do you actually purify your intent or motivations? I mean. You see, it's it's not helpful, but then there is fear, and that's really at the bottom of it. And okay, no, I'm not. I'm gonna stop fear. I mean, like even if you try, you can't do it. Yeah. So yeah how how do you question. make that happen? Oh, there we go. Thanks, Mike. <laughs> yeah. Good. So she asked about like how do you purify that? So let's say you're there with enough stability of mind. And you, you get a sense like, oh yeah, there are unwholesome roots active in the mind. And I am planting seeds, setting things in motion that are making things tight. How do you purify that? And this is the hard thing is being aware and being aware, like when we say, oh yeah, there's hate in the mind or there's fear in the mind. And so we're willing to be intimate with that, which is we're willing to feel the karmic fruit of the fear that's in the mind, like the ouch of it. Or if there's a wholesome quality of mind, we're willing to feel the lightness of the love that's there or the lightness of contentment that's there in the mind or forgiveness that's in the mind. So it's actually the willingness to be intimate with the wholesome and unwholesome roots is what purifies the mind. Nobody has to purify the mind. We just need to be intimate which another way of saying intimate, we need to comprehend the difference between wholesome and unwholesome. And the only way we comprehend the difference is by being intimate. We're letting, when there is anger, we're letting the anger have its effect. It hurts. And you see, it changes the mind because now the mind has had a direct, immediate lesson. Anger hurts. Fear hurts. Greed hurts. And that changes the mind going forward, so it purifies it. Or love is liberating, compassion is liberating, contentment is liberating, 
Letting go is liberating. Seeing clearly is liberating. It's light. It immediately has a taste of freedom. And that purifies the mind. So whether it's noticing a wholesome root or the mind being colored by wholesome qualities or noticing unwholesome qualities, that's purifying. We just need to let the karma. Seeing karma is what makes things better. And then what makes things worse? Not seeing karma. That's how we repeat cycles of suffering. It's not that we're not getting pushed around by life, but we're not seeing cause and effect. We're not comprehending, oh yeah, this hurts, or oh yeah, this really helps. We're just not seeing at that subtle level. So we can keep making the same mistake over and over. Thinking that here we are in a committed relationship, maybe we've gotten married, and all we do is stew about our partner, right? As if that's going to lead to something liberating or a happy life. No, it leads to hell, right? There's probably half of the people in this room that could raise their hand and confirm (laughs) that this is in fact true. Staying in a relationship where most of what we're doing is hating the other person or being frustrated with the other person, what does that set in motion? A tight heart, right? And generally, it makes the other person tight too. Yeah. So let's leave it here. We'll just take a few seconds to take one or two breaths together. Appreciate the time. It's nice to reflect back on all the women, all the men, all the people before us. How many generations of people with their busy, complicated lives doing their practice. And we are now the fortunate recipients of this wisdom from the Buddha on down, one generation after another. And this comes with some responsibility because now it's our turn in our complicated world with its suffering, with all the injustice, all the complications. It's our turn to hear these teachings and to bring them into our lives to develop wisdom and compassion and to become part of the causes and conditions for the release of suffering, the letting go, the moving beyond suffering. So may this be so. And thanks everyone for coming tonight. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.